0: Welcome in. MCC, you guys good? Hey, welcome in if you are brand new here with us. Welcome in. Thank you for choosing to take some time out of your weekend and be here to gather together in this crazy group of folks that is McDonough Christian Church. Hey, if you are new, I I would love to invite you to something we have coming up here at MCC, whether you're new kind of today or even over the course of the winter. Uh, I don't wanna invite you to this thing that we're doing here called Connecting Points. It's gonna be on February 11th, right after this service. It's a lunch essentially that we have where we kind of talk a little bit more about what's going on, what's happening at MCC, who we are as a church, and we give you a chance to be able to kind of express who you are. Really, the whole goal of the thing is to have this point where we actually get connected, where you're not just showing up, kind of see it, and then sneaking out of the back, but that actual connection happens. We're going to do lunch at it. There's free childcare. If you want to come to this and you've got uh, kids, all of this is, is our way of being able to try to extend our arms out to be able to welcome you in the best way we possibly can. So if you want to be a part of that, text breadsticks because there's going to be Olive Garden when you're here, your family, same at MCC, to that number right there. And we would love to get connected with you guys and have you there as well. All right. Get your Bible, grab it, go to Romans chapter 12, Hebrews. I am just making sure y'all listening. Come on. Come on. Just kidding. I totally made a mistake. I can't lie. Um, Hebrews chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 is really good though. Um, if you're looking for something, you know, <laughs> see what you want to see, find what you want to find. Romans 12 is not where we're going to be. Hebrews 12 is where we're going to be. We're going to go verses one through 11 today and really lean into verse 11. So grab your Bible, go there. This is the Word of God. Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of Spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. And here's primarily our verse for the day. Verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Sword the word of God. Let's pray, church. Father God, we thank you for this chapter in your word. I thank you that it is a passage that we can come to and be able to ask the really hard questions that even this church here, as they were struggling and going through what they were going through, we can relate to them because we too have had times in our life where we have asked, if Jesus is so good, why are things so bad? there may even be somebody here today who that question is at the forefront of their mind. I pray that today they don't just see answers that pacify the anger or the frustration or the doubt or anxiety they fear. But I pray they see the answer. I pray they see you, Jesus. It is only in seeing and savoring who you are and what you've done and who we are in light of that that there is any hope for us, Jesus. And so I pray for strength, pray for perseverance. I pray that we would not be a church who shrinks back, but we would be a church that stands firm, that holds fast, and it continues to lock eyes with you and run the race that you've marked out for us. In your name, amen. So to recap a little bit of what is the reason that this pastor has written this book slash sermon of Hebrews. So we have it in our Bibles and we call it the book of Hebrews. Really the book of Hebrews was more so a sermon that a pastor was giving to a church that was really struggling. A church that was struggling with either being weary and faint hearted and shrinking back from their faith or standing ground in their faith. Being people who would go upstream or people who would drift downstream. The context of that challenge to either hold fast or let go was really perpetuated by the persecution that they were facing. Remember, this is a group of people that is formerly Hebrew people, fully following after the the God Yahweh. And now they have this choice as they have come to this place where he has fully explained that Jesus is the fullness and the culmination of everything that God was really pointing to through all of the old covenant. Now Jesus has come and complete that. He's a true great high priest. He's the true altar. He's the true sacrificial lamb. And he is the one to whom all things point to. They have this moment in time where they go, are we going to continue to follow our religion? Are we now going to embrace a life that embodies a relationship with this Jesus as our Messiah, as our King, as our Lord? In doing that, they face a life that kind of puts them between a rock and a hard place. They are in an area that they live in, their country, so to speak, is under the rule of the Roman Empire. So they're under the rule of the Roman Empire, which is oppressive to any religion who doesn't look at Caesar as God himself. And at the same time, the religion of Judaism, being a Jew, gave them some sort of protection from some things, but what's now happened to them is now they're becoming something somewhat separate than this Jewish identity, as they're placing their identity and the one who they feel is the king of the Jews, Jesus. So they're facing opposition both from the overarching governmental side of things, but then they're even facing persecution from people who used to be their friends. They're being ostracized, de-invited from family gatherings. They're having property stolen. And what this pastor knows is persecution is getting bad and it's going to get worse for this church. And what he does here is he tries to help them endure. He encourages, encourages, encourages. He says, some of you are bowing out and some are going to endure. He says, some of you are letting go and some are holding fast. Some are shrinking back and some are stepping up. What this pastor knows is what I know. That that is what happens inside of every congregation. And he had felt it. We have different passages in here where he makes a point to to call out the fact that there were some who were with us and they're no longer with us. There were some who, who had this, but then tried to go back to the old religious law. And he said, there doesn't even remain a sacrifice for you anymore because the only sacrifice was the son of God, Jesus. And so the question that I think is on this pastor's mind and is on mine too, is, is which will you be? Which will we be? Will we be people who are not just part of MCC as a church, but as the overarching church of Christ, Will we be counted of those who hold fast and endure? Are we be those ones who shrink back, who are dismayed, who let go when things get hard? To give you a little bit of an idea of of what this pastor is out, I wanna actually take you backwards, kind of give us a really good summary of this to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10, verse 35 through 39. We were in this somewhere around Thanksgiving or so. Hebrews 10, 35 through 39. Let's go back and, and remind ourselves of what is going on in this pastor's mind and why. Now, when he begins to talk about enduring, holding fast faith, he leans into explicitly here in chapter 12, this pain that they're gonna face. So let's look at chapter 10, which is 35 through 39. He says, therefore, don't throw away your confidence which is kind of his way of remembering back. Like, I remember when you guys heard this and you got this for the first time, you believed it, nobody could talk you out of it. He's saying, don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward for you have need of endurance. Chapter 11 and 12 are are what he's trying to do by the power of the Holy Spirit to muster up as the most endurance he possibly can inside of their life. So he says, you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And then he quotes from the Old Testament says, for yet a little while and the coming one will come, that's Jesus, and will not delay. Then he says, my righteous one shall live by faith. We're gonna talk a lot about righteousness today. My righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, which his pastor knew was happening in his church and knew was potentially going to happen even more as persecution got worse, he says, and if he shrinks back or if she shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And then it says, if his eyes rise up and he begins to look the true hearted, the faithful, the enduring, the non-shrinking back, the not drifting people in the eyes. And he says, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. He says that in chapter 10, and then he preaches chapter 11 and gets to chapter 12 to show us, chapter 12 is to show us how to not shrink back and how to preserve our souls. What he's explaining in chapter 12 is in this life of enduring and not shrinking back, one of the things that is unavoidable is pain. And what he's done here in these first 11 verses of chapter 12 is I think showed them three things that really they need to learn, they must learn to endure about pain. We talked about two of them last week and we're gonna get to the, hopefully the third today. He says, first of all, pain is a gift. It's counterintuitive, but pain actually is a gift. It's a gift because pain, is not a sign of God's condemnation on you. If you're in Christ, pain is actually a sign and is the gift of confirmation that God is with you, that he is for you. It confirms that you are in the kingdom. It confirms that you have a father. That's why all of that passage was leaning into this idea and concept of, have you not remembered what it says, that that God is a father who disciplines the son he loves, and this discipline is for a purpose. We talked about this again last week, if you missed it, please go back and and check that out. That are signs of pain and frustration and things that we face in this life that are less than ideal are not signs that God has abandoned us, but those are signs that God has adopted us. And the second part, I believe he's making the point here, is that this pain, because it's coming from a good father, this pain is for our good. That our God has our pain measured out to the most molecular level. and is nothing that we would face in this life that is painful, that is beyond anything short of the purposes that he actually has to get us to face what we must face next. Now today, we're gonna lean into this, that the pain is actually leading us to a goal. I think verse 11 really does show us what this goal is, what this hope is, and what this purpose is. Let's look at 11 together. He says, for at the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I love the fact that he just starts out just kind of addressing the elephant in the room, all right? All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. It's like, great, I'm glad you actually said that, all right? We need to know that, we need to all be on the same page. This word discipline that showed up over and over and over again here in this passage is the Greek word paideia. And it means instruction that trains someone to reach full development. It's coming on the heels of him saying Jesus is what? The author and the finisher, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And he's saying pain is something, discipline is something that moves us to the fullness of what we're actually supposed to become. So in Jesus, you have the author and finisher of faith. What that means is there's nothing that Jesus has started that he has not already finished. And so when he starts faith in you, when faith starts and begins in you, you know what he has in mind? The end. Before it began, he knows the end. He knows what you're gonna turn into. He knows the end goal of your life. And what he's doing is he's working in your life to deliver both through pain and pleasure, joy and sorrow, the things that are the essential elements of your transformation, not into a better version of yourself, but into the image of Christ wherever you are so that people don't even realize who's who. This is his goal, to take us through this discipline, to lead to these things. Now, let's make sure we're on the same page of what in the world this discipline is. In the context, this is key, because sometimes we can come to a verse like Hebrews chapter 12, and even a verse like 11 right here, and go, okay, this is talking about like push-ups and eating right, and stuff like that, and like self-discipline. Next week, I'm gonna talk to you about the difference between God's discipline and self-discipline and how they're different, but how in tandem they can actually work together. That's next week. That's not what kind of discipline is going on here. What's happening here in the context of discipline for them is persecution. What God is trying to get in their mind, and I think it is really important that an American church In 2024, looking forward to whatever the future may bring needs to also get this definition of discipline in our mind as a church in this country. In many other places on the world, the church has already made this their definition of discipline. When we think discipline, we think, oh, that's me waking up early and reading my Bible and praying. Discipline is me driving across town to go to small group. Discipline is me not saying cuss words in traffic. That's what American Christians think of when we think about discipline. In other parts of the world where Christianity isn't as favorable as it is here, when they hear the word discipline, they equate that with persecution, pain, being ostracized in society, having property stolen, facing threats of imprisonment if they continue to read and preach the Bible. This is what this church came to equate the discipline of God as. And they began viewing even the torturous, evil, Vile, wicked, illegal things that were happening to them, not as just bad things, but good things. Discipline from a holy God who is now proving in this bad thing that he is working it together for my good and affirming that I am absolutely his child. He says, I get it. This discipline doesn't seem pleasant, but it seems painful. Now, this word painful there is this Greek word, lupe, And it doesn't just translate as pain, but it also translates as sorrow and grief. And I came to understand that and really appreciated that that is what that means. Here's why. Jesus, while he walked on earth, he preached a lot and taught a lot. And one of the centrifugal parts of Jesus' teaching was if you want to save your life here on earth, you must lose it. If you wanna save your life, you will lose it. But if you, for the sake of living great down here, you try to save your life, you in fact will lose it. And I love this verse and how it actually attaches this pain to grief. And comes to this place where you realize, okay, in me losing my life, in me taking up my cross and dying to myself daily, there actually is room for grief. When we sell the cabin in the mountains for the sake of funding missionaries it's okay to grieve and have sorrow over what we lost when there is pain because we're not able to do that thing we have grown to enjoy doing he's recognizing and understanding and making it something that offers christ's empathy to us to say i understand there is sorrow there is loss because in that pain there is something that is being lost that thing that's being lost that we're grieving over is our flesh cravings for anything that would satisfy us here on earth other than Jesus. He's saying, I understand, we should mourn for those. We should have a quick funeral and move on and see the life that we actually have in Christ. So he says, for all the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. And if you got a Bible and you're one of those people who thinks it's okay to underline and highlight things, do it to this word right here, seems. This is important. He says, discipline seems painful. A couple of weeks ago, uh, I was teaching downstairs for middle school and high school students because Pastor Tim's appendix tried to kill him and uh, exploded. And uh, he, he, I tried to get him to come in and teach. You know, I was like, well, you know, no excuse, get here. Um, <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, I completely understood. And so I hopped in and and taught for him. And one of the things I was teaching to those students down there that I would teach to us as well, it's not a middle school, high school lesson. This is a grown-up lesson as well. Sometimes my feelings aren't real. Sometimes what I feel is not real. Despite the fact that this feels painful, sometimes what I feel isn't real. And, And all throughout scripture, it somewhat makes this point. That's why I even believe he says, hey, it just seems painful but things aren't always what they seem, are they? And so you gotta be going through some stuff that you're going through and going, is this painful, really painful? Or does this just seem painful because it's just something I don't like? He says, at the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. The word there is kesed, that's where we get our word for joy. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained from it. You know what word I don't like in here? That L word. Later. How long? Later. When you were a kid, and you ask your parents a question about something that you wanted. Hey, mama, can we go over to so and so's house? Hey, when can, can I play Xbox when we go home? Or can I do this? It. You almost would rather have a yes or no. The worst answer you could get was later. Well, when? Later. I, everybody else, anybody else hate that? I'd rather just tell me no so I can move on, go do something different. I don't want to hear later. It's non committal. Later. It's frustrating. But here's the good news, later promises this is actually gonna happen. Because in that L word that we don't really like because we don't have concrete examples and know exactly when it's gonna start or end, what we do know is that later is a promise that it will happen. Now here, here's, here's the thing that I've come to realize in my short 34 years on earth, five, sorry. I don't, I don't know how old I am. Uh, I don't know if that was a good sign or a bad sign. Um, some years of your life are going to be question years. And some years of your life are going to be answer years. Here's what I mean by that. Some years you're going to go through stuff and you're going to be asking questions like God, why is this happening? God, why are we moving again? God, what's going on in these kids' lives? God, why do I feel this way? God, I they're question years. And some of you are in a question year right now. God, what are you doing? God, this doesn't make sense. God, why would you let this happen? God, what are you up to? And then some years, if you follow Jesus for long enough, and this is why I can tell you unequivocally, you have some for sure question years, and usually they come in rows. But then eventually, what you get are some answer years where you begin to look back and you go, oh, I see why you didn't let me marry that person from high school. Uh, I showed back up to the reunion and... Both of his wives were there, it's weird. I don't know what's going on. Are <laughs> you go, God, I would have never asked. I, I've seen this in my own life. God, I would have never asked for the childhood that I had. But man, oh man, do, do I look at the amazing parents Jessica and I make because she grew up in a home where she learned everything right to do, and I grew up in a home where I learned pretty much everything not to do. And so we are not perfect but what a grace it is to have the wisdom from the bad and the good we both saw. You have question years and you have answer years. Let's just let's, let's have a little moment of uh, counseling in the room together. If you'd be willing to admit that you're in a question year where you're asking God some big questions, some things he's going on in your life right now that you don't understand, would you be willing to just raise your hand and admit you're in a question year with God? That's good. All right, now, I asked this at the uh, 9 o'clock or the 9.15 crowd, and it was more older people. And I said, how many of you are in answer years? And like half the room was like, like and, and here's the proof in that, or here's the promise in that. The longer you live down here, do you know what more you have of? Answer years. This is why we gotta stop being like American culture. I, and it frustrates me when I call older people old. It's like, that's a good thing. I, I can't wait to get old. I can't wait to be able to look in the rearview mirror of my life and see promise after promise after promise after promise of God come to an answer. I'm looking forward to getting old. Some old people in the room, please say amen. Amen. All right, thank you. It's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing if you make it a bad thing. It's not a bad thing if we ignore the wisdom that God's given us as he lets us grow in our time down here on earth. But I look forward to decades and decades of seeing the questions that I had about God answered over and over and over again. So some of you in this room, would you be willing to admit that you're in an answer year? All right. So, my question year people in the room, if you go find one of those people who just raised their hands and ask them, do they rejoice over the years where they had the questions? Every one of them who just had their hands up will tell you yes. And the reason is because of what God taught them and what God showed them and how He revealed themselves, or how He revealed Himself to them in those years where they went without answers because they now have seen his grace. And even though later stinks sometimes, we can still live in the promise that later is a promise that's actually going to happen. We don't know how long, or how short, but it's gonna happen. So he says later, here's what it's gonna do. It's gonna yield this peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So there's this training that has to come that's remaining under the discipline and it produces this thing that is righteousness. Now, if you have been hanging out with us for any period of time here at MCC, we're not a church that's afraid of those big words like righteousness and holiness and sanctification. These are words that we have to grasp in our faith if we're gonna have an actual understanding of who God is and what he's done. And if you come to this word righteousness, what we know about righteousness is righteousness is supposed to be this this reality that I am in right standing with God, that in the account of my sins, they are now indebted to Christ. Those sins have now been taken care of because he as a perfect substitutionary sacrifice, one who was completely sinless, completely undeserving of what he went through. He has now died for me. I had all the debt I could ever owe to that God He died for me, my debt went on him. Now I am right, righteous at zero. I am sinless in God's eyes. That's what righteousness is. I'm justified between me and a holy God. And it is now because of my faith in Christ, it is just as if I'd never sinned. That's what righteousness means. So if that's one of our definitions for righteousness, then we got to hold up and read this passage one more time. Because that means for the moment, all discipline seems painful. Rather than pleasant, but later on it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness. Does this mean I'm not right with God until I go through a whole lot of bad stuff? Does this mean I'm not right? I'm not righteous in God's eyes until I suffer, 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 endure, 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 endure? It's key here that we understand that there are two, biblically, there are two types of righteousness. I explained this at length when we went through the armor of God. We talked about the br- blood. Br- It's hard to say that word, breastplate of righteousness. There are two types of righteousness in scripture. There is the imputed righteousness. I'm gonna nerd on you, we're gonna get theologically deep if you want something shallow, just not here. Um, There's imputed righteousness and then there is imparted righteousness, okay? imputed righteousness, the easy way to remember this is right in there, in that word is P-U-T. It's righteousness that is put in, is put into your account, is put into your life. This is the righteousness that brings about that salvation. It's the righteousness that brings about the justification where God looks at us and he sees the righteousness of his son because his blood covers us by our faith in him. That is imputed righteousness, but There's another flip side to the righteousness of God that he gives his children. There's imputed righteousness and then there is imparted righteousness. Imparted righteousness is righteousness that God perpetually makes part of our life as we walk with him. Imputed righteousness is where we receive justification. Imparted righteousness is where we achieve sanctification. Sanctification is this continual process of God transforming and turning you into someone who no longer struggles with what you struggle with, someone who has completely overcome those things that have held you up for so many years. This is why we know that we can pray a prayer and get baptized and and profess faith in Christ, but that person doesn't just magically come down from the sky tub up there, just never ever sinning again, right? There's still a process of sanctification that has to happen. That is what this verse is talking about. Not imputed righteousness. You've already got that. The church has already got that. These believers already have that. What he's talking about is if you can endure under this discipline, under this pain, under this training, what will begin to happen in your life is this sanctification process of you becoming Jesus everywhere your footsteps will begin to be fast forward in ways that you never ever could imagine. And what's wild here, track with me on this. This is what led this early church to explode and expand. How did this group of 12 random guys in an upper room after a crucified savior turn into millions upon millions around the world worshiping him? Do you wanna know how? One, the amazing power of the Holy Spirit. Two, persecution. The harder people tried to stop the movement and the momentum of Jesus' kingdom coming on earth as it was in heaven through his disciples, the harder all of the powers of darkness tried to stop that, the faster it spread. Why? Because Our God uses pain and discipline to speed up that sanctification process. So as Peter is being crucified upside down, as Christians are being tarred and feathered and whipped and beaten, what's happening is their faith is turning them more and more into living embodiments of Jesus where they are. And when Jesus shows up in living rooms, classrooms, buildings, it's contagious and it spreads because people finally see something that is real. And that, and this is why we can't be afraid of it. This is why the call for the church in America is not to build bunkers and just wait for him to return. The call is to let him continue to transform us, albeit by pain, albeit by persecution, albeit being by fired, albeit by us having to sell the building and go underground, come whatever may. We know that the harder the powers of evil and dark forces try to wring out the gospel message, the faster it spreads. So come on, this is where you have, this is where the church can get a chip back on its shoulder and go, we're not afraid of the pain because pain leads to the harvest of righteousness and peace. Now, what, we're really after here is not just discipline for the sake of discipline. Because that would just be this idea that Jesus wants to just turn us into Christian masochists who just go, yeah, pain! like, And we go out seeking it. There are are some people like that. What he's really after is not just pain for the sake of pain. What he's really after is devotion. It's discipline that leads to devotion. I want to give you this as the goal. And I wanna show you uh, an equation. Oh, too fast. Back one. I don't wanna take communion yet. <laughs> that one, yes. Okay. Discipline is where it starts, and devotion is what we all ultimately want. But how many of you know, let's just talk about something that everybody maybe understands this time of the year. New year starts and we wanna be devoted to our health this year. We crashed and burned in 2023 and we wanna get some better things going on. We want be more devoted to our, we wanna be devoted to going to the gym. We wanna be devoted to eating healthy, okay? How many of you know, you don't just start out devoted to those things because you tasted kale and you're like, what the kale is this? I don't. This is disgusting. <laughs> this is horrible, why do I have to eat this? Or you, or you went to the gym or you tried to go run and it's 14 degrees outside. That's not fun that you don't start out devoted. You have to go through discipline to get to devotion. But there's this magic, not magic, but there's this awesome thing in the meantime that comes, and it's desire. This is where, after a while, we we begin to have some things we're actually disciplined, whether that's to eating or being a good parent or, or keeping our cool in traffic, we begin to practice the discipline, the hard part, the thing that is painful. And after a while, we start to actually see benefits and results from that. You wake up in the morning, you look in the mirror and you go like, huh, I feel good. Or or you, you go to bed and you sleep perfectly all through the night and you wake up without an alarm and you go, hmm, something's working. What happens there is you begin to see the results of your discipline and it becomes something you actually desire. And then in tandem with this continual discipline and this brewing desire, this fire in your heart to continue to stay disciplined, now you get to this place where you're actually devoted. Now I want to do this. Now I'm, I'm fired up for this. Now this is something I look forward to doing. And so we set out and we go, okay, I want to be devoted to Jesus. Like, that's my goal. Like, if that's what you're saying, if, if, if you're saying, yes, we got to be disciplined, but that discipline breeds this desire to follow Christ. And that discipline and desire makes me lock eyes with him. And I'm going, Jesus, I'm so devoted to you. How do I stay devoted to Jesus for the long haul? Best way that I can... Uh, try to explain this is is not with just words, but with actual uh, diagram that um, Eric, God bless his heart. He's, he comes into my office and sometimes I just feel like my hair is like this. I'm like a mad scientist. And I'm like, can you fix, you know, I had this thing on the board that looked like I was chasing criminals. And I was like, can you turn this into something that makes sense? And Eric is awesome at that. So he helped me with this. I wanna show you this. All right. So there's God, the father, and then there's you. Uh, I was gonna draw this out. It's gonna be terrible. Nobody would've been able to tell what I was talking about. So there's God, the father, and then there's you, okay? Now, what God, the father wants to do is he wants to show you who he is. He wants to express and explain to you who he is. He wants to reveal himself to you, all right? How does that God do that? The way the father reveals who he is and his devotion to us is he shows us the son's devotion to us. Jesus is the primary example and proof positive of how devoted the father is to you. If a father is willing to send his only begotten son, perfect son to you, that proves positive how devoted that father and that son are to you. He sends that to us. We're supposed to see and savor that. Here's Where we go from here. This is the Trinity working on this side of things. God the Father shows his devotion to us through the Son's devotion to me and you. Now what the Holy Spirit does is prior to coming to faith in Christ, before the Holy Spirit ever works in you, the Holy Spirit works on you to help you see the Son's devotion to you. Okay, once you begin to see the son's devotion to you, hopefully that preaching of the gospel, that reading the word, seeing that whatever it was, that melts your whole heart of stone and you invite Jesus to be the Lord and savior of your life. And now you not just become somebody who has the Holy Spirit work on you, but he begins to work in you. Where most Christians get wrong is we get to right here and we go, okay. I'm going to go be devoted. And we turn our eyes from ever looking back this way and we just turn our head fully this way and just go, okay, he's devoted to me enough and I understand that to the point of salvation. Now, let me just go be devoted to him. And so we live these lives where we try to go and be devoted to Jesus. And we let his, this devotion kind of work through us. But here's the problem. The Holy Spirit is primarily given to us not to just let us see Jesus for the first time so that we put our faith in him and then we get salvation and now he lives in us and just tells us to go be devoted to him. The definition of a a good follower of Christ is not primarily somebody who is devoted to Jesus. The definition of someone who is a true God-honoring Christian is someone who primarily, first and foremost, sees how devoted the Son is to you. This is where this is like I don't know, imagine like a, a power, like it all starts here and it flows this way and we become what stops up the power of God moving through us. Because most Christians, what we do is we just put a line right here and then we just kind of look up and go, God the Father loves me. And then we go and try to be devoted followers of Jesus. We go have his devotion working through me. And then we just go try to be devoted husbands, dads and we are devoted to our stuff. And we fail. And we fail miserably. Here's, here's why I'm telling you this. We have got to be a people. This is what all of Hebrews 12 is about. Before you run, before you strip off the things that are holding you back, the weight and the sin, before you do that, he, that's why he says over and over again in this passage, see Jesus. See what? See his devotion to you. And this is what I'm begging us to, to be a church that sees how devoted he is, that feels how devoted divinity is for us. And I know it doesn't make sense. I know that this devotion that Jesus has given me is not something I can earn, I don't deserve, but I am sure, I am sure of one thing, and I'm sure that that devotion is there. I gave up a long time ago, and I invite you as a church here at MCC to renounce the primary definition of a good Christian as being someone who is just devoted to Jesus. And instead, understand this, that a good Christian is someone whose jaw has fully dropped as they stand spellbound, amazed, captivated, and motivated, as they look to a bloodstained cross and the intricate details now of their blessedly blood-covered lives and see in living color not what they're doing for Jesus, but what he's done for them. And so many of us, man, so many of us get so consumed by our devotion to him that we completely miss out on his devotion to us. Inside the classrooms of Bible college and seminaries, there are devoted men who know systematic theology backwards and forwards, but don't know Jesus. In pulpits all around the country, there are devoted preachers who have missed the very one they are preaching about. In congregations even like ours, there are souls who may be so devoted to Christ's second coming that they have missed the purpose of his first coming. We make ourselves feel better about how good we are at not doing bad, failing to realize that our eyes are still remaining locked on what we're doing and what others, less holy than us, of course, are doing as well. All the while we miss what has been done for us. We bless ourselves because of our discipline and devotion and then turn right back around and curse ourselves because of our lack of discipline and devotion, all the while missing out on the ongoing, never failing, never ceasing devotion of Jesus, which is also great news here, not predicated by how devoted to him you are. This is why guys, Jesus struggled so much with Pharisees, the religious people that he encountered. The primary proponents of crucifying Jesus were not the tax collectors, whores, prostitutes, and quote, unquote, sinners. The people who perpetuated the crucifixion of Jesus were the religious. They thought that they were good with God because how devoted they were to God. This is how dangerous this is. This this is how dangerous being a Christian who just lives on this half of the map is. These people thought they were so good with God because they were so devoted to God that God is literally standing in front of them. And not only do they fail to recognize him as the king of heaven, they call him the king of hell. And he's right there. And they're the ones who are wearing the crowns. They're the ones who know God the best, but they miss God when he's right in front of them. So I would say to some people in this room who maybe you're new to following Jesus, you're just now kind of starting out in this relationship. You you may be a young person in the room who's just trying to figure out what it look like to follow Jesus as a young adult, teenager, middle schooler, or you're here in this room and you're, you're a grown adult, you're in your 30s or 40s, but you're just starting to get serious about Jesus. Here's what I would tell you. The greatest threat to your relationship with Jesus is probably not going to be your old rebellious friends. It's going to be your new religious friends. It's gonna be the people who don't know the difference between a life consumed with seeing what they do for Jesus and missing what's been done for them. So you're asking this question, especially new to following Jesus people in the room. Listen, how do you know the difference between somebody who has a relationship with Jesus and who's somebody who's just practicing religion? Here's how you know the difference. Humility, humility. A person who has seen Jesus for who he is will always be the person who is most humble in the room. The person most quickly to understand how sinful they actually are is a person who has seen how perfect Jesus actually is. The person who is usually the most patient is a person who understands how patient Jesus has been to them. And these are the people that he is calling us to be. People who see what he's done for us first, who see his devotion to us first, who let that become the focus of our lives. And then, only then, do we get to be this people who now that we've seen it, we can go be devoted to Jesus, to a world that desperately needs to see that devotion to us and through us. Because here's what's awesome about this. The son's devotion isn't just something I look back and I go and I study like it's a textbook to help me out. And then I go look at my life and I go, oh, that didn't measure up, this did. And I'm trying to you know, figure out the holes and the fill in the blanks. No, this Jesus who is devoted to me now lives where? He's up in here, <laughs> that's awesome. Now I lean into this devotion to Christ. Now that devotion is living through me and my eyes can get off of me because what does Jesus wanna go do? He wants to go be devoted through me. Now I can actually be a devoted husband. Not because I'm trying to be a devoted husband, so people go, pat on the butt, Trent, you're such a devoted husband. Man, you guys just don't look like you ever argue. I'm not trying to be a devoted dad, so that people think, man, Dad of the Year Award, write a book on parenting, Trent. No, I'm a devoted dad because it's Jesus showing his devotion to me, and all my failing, and all my faults. I'm a devoted dad because I now see how devoted of a father I actually have. I didn't see him if I didn't look at his son. This is why, The world will never have devoted husbands, fathers, and never have devoted people in their calling. They may have fathers who don't have their kids end up in counseling. They may have marriages that make it 60 something years, but according to the word of God, they will not be fruitful because they will not be righteous because it will not be done by people who've actually seen what the son has done for them. And what I'm beckoning us to is to be people who see before we are people who go and try to be. And this is, our, this is our call. This is how we get to the place where devotion actually does what I believe God wants it to do in us. This is where discipline doesn't crush us. Because here's the deal. And if you're a dad in the room, you know this, or a dad and a husband, especially, these two things, a uh, dad and a husband, and then you got a job too. That's a burden, right, fellas? That's a weight. That's the stuff that makes you pull into the driveway and you just need a second. You just kind of turn the car off and. You <sighs> just got to think through it for a second. Single parents in the room, trying to be a parent and try to raise them the right way and you feel like you're doing it on your own, being provider and to protect her just by yourself. It's a burden. Grandparents in the room who have kids that are prodigals and you're on kids round two right now, doing everything you can to try to be godly influences to grandkids. It's a burden. Here's the good thing, it's supposed to be. I used to think there were different times in my fatherhood and my parenting and my pastoring. There were times when it felt like a blessing and there were times when it felt like a burden, all right? What I've come to understand is that the the burden is the blessing. The burden is the blessing. One time I gave Titus a spanking and send me the email um, if you want to, Uh, but I do that. this, if Hebrew, if anything is giving me permission to actually give my kids uh, weapons, it's Hebrews 12. Um, anyway, I did that one time. That one time he got in trouble. Um, and I remember after it, this is before I'd read Hebrews. I remember after it going, Titus, I hate having to do this. I love you. I don't, I don't wanna do this. I hate having to do this. And then I read Hebrews. I read Hebrews 12. It says the father shows his love by his discipline. I had to go and repent to Titus. Because how can I say that there's this God who is my father who disciplines me out of love and loves to discipline me, which that's kind of scary, and then come around and embody my role as a father to my child and fathers in the room, whether we like it or not, the primary opinion that your child will have about God as a father is unfortunately or fortunately you. And I can't go to him and say, I hate discipline you when he's got a heavenly father who loves disciplining him. And so I had to come in and I I go, Son, I don't find joy in whipping your butt. It doesn't bring me pleasure, but I love that God would entrust your correction and training to me. It's a responsibility. And I love that God would choose me to be your daddy. And part of me, Part of my calling to be your daddy means that sometimes I'm gonna have to discipline you in a way that's not going to feel good. God does that to me because he's a good father and I'm gonna do my best to be a good father to you. The worst thing I could do to you is to make you think this is something I hate. It doesn't make me smile right now, but it is gonna make me smile in a while when I know that this is a mistake you won't make again. And that's, that's where this rubber meets the road in our own lives. Because now all of these things that we're called to do, this is like, because you go, okay, be devoted to Jesus. Well, what does that look like down here for us? Well, what are you? A mom, a wife, an employee, a sister, a daughter? A friend, a brother, a husband. What, think about the parts of your identity that are secondary to who you are in Christ. Well, these are the primary vessels through which our devotion to Jesus now flow out. Now remember, they're not just flowing out and ending right here. Where, did that go, where does that go back to? One of Pastor Tim's favorite verses is, is in the book of 1 John. It says, I have no greater delight than to know that my children are walking with the Lord. It's saying the thing that brings me, that helps me glorify God the most is to know that my kids are walking with God. And I can agree, now now I'm not being a good parent for the sake of being a good parent, not a good husband for the sake of being a good husband, not a good employee for the sake of being a good employee, not a good Sunday teacher for the sake of being a good Sunday teacher. I'm doing all of those because I have seen how devoted the father is to me by his son. And the Holy Spirit has let me be devoted to everything that he has entrusted to me and to whom much is given, much is demanded. And I'm allowing the devotion I have to God to lead to devotion to all of these other areas of my life. And this is the perpetual cycle. When I feel like I start stinking over here, Jessica can amen to this. When I am stinking at this, it is not because I am being less devoted to Jesus. It is not, the, the reason I am being a bad husband is not because I'm not trying hard to be a devoted to Jesus person. The reason I'm not being a devoted husband is because I'm not seeing, this is where it goes back to. When you're stinking in one of those areas, don't go back to here. What am I doing wrong? No, go back here. What did he do for me? You're not getting that. This is the essential ingredient. Unless you get to this place where it bottoms out, it doesn't have the momentum to shoot back up. Does that make sense? Okay. Last last little bit. I want you to be able to see how this worked out in Jesus's life and hopefully will work out in ours. Backtrack a little bit to Hebrews here. Hebrews 5, 8, and 9. Although he was a son, talking about Jesus, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, again, here we're talking about Jesus. And we can read the gospels and go, there's nothing that Jesus learned while he was down here. He knew, he knew everything. He's omniscient. Well, not according to Hebrews. It says he learned some things while he was down here. He learned obedience through what he suffered. It's not saying that some new knowledge of things came up, but it's saying that that suffering was producing the resistance to the pulls of this flesh and the pulls of this world. When he, I mean, you don't think it was tough? There with Judas in the room who's getting ready to betray you for 30 pieces of silvers and you're washing his nasty feet? And Jesus could have totally said like, hey, uh, I need you to step out. No, he's right there. Jesus, Judas ate at the table and Judas got his feet washed too. He learned obedience through what he suffered and being made perfect He became the source of eternal salvation to all who would obey him. Now, this is it about Jesus. What's awesome is we have this book written by the brother of Jesus, James, which I don't know what your brother would have to do for you to believe he was God, but James somehow believed his brother was God, all right? So that's pretty good from the apologetic side of stuff, all right? If you ask my sister, what would you have to do to believe that Trent is God? She'd probably say, die on a cross and resurrect, and I believe he's a God then. Well, some of the greatest proof that Jesus is actually who he said he is, is one of his brothers, who used to not have faith in him, who used to think he was crazy, is now going, no, he's the Messiah. Why? Not because of something he read, but because of something he saw. He saw him rise from the dead. It's pretty awesome. He said this, talking about us now. He says, count all joy my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And with steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Again, this is the author and the finisher letting suffering, trials, test us and lead us to triumph. And my friends, this is, this is the goal. This is what hopefully we're all after. This is hopefully what we're all deep inside of our guts, longing for it and urging for it. And I know James 1, 2, and 3 is a heck of a lot easier to read than it is to live. For sure, I agree with you. Rejoice in trials. But here, here's, we all want triumph. We all wanna win. We all wanna be perfected. We all want the, what the things are at the end here. We all want steadfastness, uh, we want to be perfect, complete, and lacking nothing. That sounds like a great life. How many of you, we signed up for that deal? Perfect, complete, lacking nothing. I'd sign on that, right? How do you get there? Trials, testing leads to that triumph. Because that's what our Savior did. And so I'll end today by asking you a, a question. Will you choose to remain under the pain of discipline or will you choose the pain of regret? That's the only option. You can either choose to stay under the pain of discipline when it comes, and then as it is right now, or you can choose to go, nah, I don't wanna remain under this. I'm telling you to move out from under the discipline that God has sent your way, the only option, and where it heads to is regret. This is where the discipline of God is actually protective and I've got to remain under it. Because when I'm not under God's discipline to me as a husband, I'm operating on my own. That's why the word endure, it's a compound word in the Greek that means remain under. I want to remain under Christ. There's never a moment in my life where I don't want to remain under him. So in my marriage, I don't want there to be moments where I'm not remaining under him. In my parenting, I don't want to be moments where I'm not remaining under him. In my pastoring of a, of a church and being the guy that God has called me to be in, in our society, in our city here. I don't want to do that, not remaining. I want every step that I take. That's why he says in this race, endure. In this race, endure under Christ. Don't take a step of this race without being under him. And he's going to go next week and really lean in hard to strengthen your knees. And hopefully next week we can lean into what does that actually mean? But today, as you commune with him, as you take of his broken body and his poured out blood for you on display through communion. I love that we have a God who didn't just say, this is something that you gotta go out there and get, but one who said, I'm gonna come and I'm gonna do this through you. And I pray that today as you commune with him, that you ask Jesus to be your strength. I pray that you invite him in these moments to spark a love for the discipline that turns into desire, that turns into devotion. And I pray that as you commune with him, that you don't look forward. Look, don't take these last few minutes of our time together and start thinking about all the things you need to go do to be more devoted to Jesus. Think about that Monday, okay, or later. Get in the car and think about that. For these moments right here, that's what communion is about. Think about how devoted he was to you. See the cross. See him walking there on the shores of Galilee, healing, teaching. See what he's done for you in your past and how he's already been devoted to you. And just bask in that for a second. And then taste and see that he is good. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for moving in us, moving amongst us. And as we commune with you now, I pray that the miracle that happens in communion takes place right inside of our souls. Speak to my friends. Speak to this church. Show us your will and show us your way. Let us not shrink back, Jesus. I want to see you for who you are and what you've done. I love you, Lord. In your name.